Good morning. My name is Sam McLaughlin, and I'm one of the pastors here at Belmead United Methodist Church. If we have not met yet, I would love the chance to connect with you. We're so glad you're here to worship today in person and online. Today we are continuing our sermon series for the season of Lent called Thy Kingdom Come. And each Sunday morning and Wednesday evening, we have been looking at a different line of the Lord's Prayer. As we begin today, I want to make sure that you heard Gracie's announcement about the Salt and Light Pantry. That pantry began out of one of our Sunday School classes, the Upper Room, as a partnership with the West Police Precinct. The idea is that we would collect items here at the church from the community and give those to the police to distribute where they saw need in the community. Um, I believe that began about two years ago, maybe three, and uh, it has grown to spread all the way across the city. Now it is a partnership with four police precincts. And so uh, once a month on Wednesday from 11 to 2, you're invited to come and bring those shelf-stable items um, to bring hygiene products, and the police will give those out. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, that is one very tangible, practical way to give other people their daily bread, the things that they need to survive. So we invite you to do that this Wednesday. On our Lenten journey, we have been looking at a short book by Adam Hamilton called The Lord's Prayer. Adam Hamilton is the pastor of one of the largest United Methodist Church in all of the world, out in Kansas City. Today, as we look at our line, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, Adam begins his chapter with a story. He says, during a retreat, four Christian men were getting really honest with one another about their struggles. One man said, my biggest temptation is lust, and I'm embarrassed to talk about it. The second said, my biggest temptation is gambling. No one knows this, but I leave on the weekends and sneak off to casinos. The third guy said, my biggest temptation is alcohol, and I've often drunk more than I should. And the last man piped up and said, guys, I really hate to tell you this, but my biggest temptation is gossip. <laughs> It is a funny joke, but it does start us right into the heart of the matter. There are real things that we are each tempted uh, by that are easy for us to conceal, easy for us to cover up, things that isolate us. And so the hope is that as we pray this line of the prayer over and over, we are freed up not just to avoid these temptations, but to bring them to light and seek the help that we need to live beyond their grip. As we talked about last week, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses are connected by the word and. And so because of this, we said that as we pray for daily sustenance or a daily awareness of how to share our resources with other people, we also pray for daily grace, grace for ourselves and grace for other people. And we need that daily, don't we? Here this week, our lines are once again joined by these ands. Jesus connects our request to forgiveness with the petition that God might lead us, might keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil. And so we might say here at the very beginning, we're praying forgive us and lead us and deliver us, God. As we explore this line of the prayer, I think it's natural to ask, 
Why are we praying for God not to lead us into temptation? Does God lead us into temptation? In James chapter 1, we actually have an answer to this question. Verses 13 through 15 say this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to to death. God does not tempt us. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. When I was growing up uh, in Alabama, there was a picture that hung in my mom's bedroom, and I forgot all about this picture until a couple of weeks ago when I was down visiting my mom. I opened uh, the, her bathroom closet door, and I saw this picture leaning against the wall. It's just uh, a small um, black and white picture with a sketch of a woman, and she's holding a martini glass, and it says, lead me not into temptation, I can find it myself. <laughs> What's funnier to me is that my mom has like never drank. <laughs> but the truth is, temptation is universal. It is something that we all face. Each one of us is tempted and we can lead ourselves right into the place of those temptations. So then how are we to understand this line of the prayer? In his book, Adam Hamilton proposes that our prayer is actually missing a comma. It's missing a really important pause, that the way it was written in times before, it would have gone like this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, putting the emphasis on lead us. So he says it should sound something like this, lead us God, not into temptation as the tempter, or we ourselves might lead, but deliver us from evil. Some translations say deliver us from the evil one. And so we need to talk about what we mean when we say the evil one. Adam says that uh, we are not literally thinking about a man in red tights with a pitchfork and red ears and a tail, though, it may be helpful for some people to personify evil, not in the form of someone that you do not like, <laughs> but the way the scripture personifies, for instance, the serpent in Genesis 3. The serpent is described as cunning and crafty and luring. It knows just how to twist the truth to make Adam and Eve give in. In terms of metaphor, personification could be useful. But he says most of the time, and I agree, it is likely that evil or the evil one is that voice that lives inside our heads, a voice that is cunning and crafty and knows just how to twist the truth. A friend of mine uh, once said in a sermon a couple years ago, uh, she said, the line between good and evil runs straight down the middle of each of us. So we are praying with this prayer to land on the good side, to live out of the good side, to avoid the voice that entices us to that place where desire gives way to sin and sin gives way to death. 
Yesterday, yesterday afternoon, I was uh, trying to entertain my seven-month-old daughter, Madeline. Can't believe that she's seven months old. It was one of those afternoons that just like stretches on. You know, she was supposed to sleep for like an hour and she slept for five minutes. And so I gave her some food and I changed her diaper and we walked around the house and we sat outside in the beautiful weather. Finally, I laid her down on the ground and I noticed this fishing pole beside me. So I picked up this fishing pole and like every good mother, I started hovering it over her head. <laughs> And she stuck her hands out trying to grab it, and she kicked her legs in what I call her uh, river dance. <laughs> and when she finally grabbed that dangling fishing pole, she tried to eat it. I was thinking about, as I was holding this fishing pole over her head, um, when Elmer Fudd used to try to lure Bugs Bunny out with a carrot, you know? You remember that cartoon? Yes. <laughs> Elmer Fudd used to try to lure Bugs Bunny out with a carrot, but Bugs Bunny always found a way to not get caught on that pole. And so today I want to offer you this image and ask you, what is it uh, that is dangling before you, right? What is your carrot? I'm not talking really about um, Sonic Oreo Blasts or Papa John's Pepperoni Pizza. I have no idea whose temptations those are. I'm talking about the deep stuff. When the staff and I uh, discussed this topic in, in our staff meeting, we shared uh, some of these things. The temptation to compare ourselves to others. The need to feel important. The temptation to be affirmed. The temptation to be dragged down by discouragement, judgment. The desire to write people off who don't think the way we think the temptation of self-righteousness. We talked about how temptation can make you feel so alone. It can isolate you. It tells you that you are the only person working through this struggle or this problem. We talked about how tempted we are to believe what it is that is going on in our minds, which isn't often the full truth, and how reassuring it is to know that you are not your thoughts. You can be separated from your thoughts. You can even change your thoughts and thought patterns. And so food, alcohol, shopping, gambling, lust, these are surface level issues. What lies beneath them? What are those things covering up? See, the good news today is that the voice in your head may be cunning and crafty like the serpent or like Elmer Fudd, but we are endowed with the mind of Christ. We are given the wisdom and the tact and the power of the Holy Spirit who is more cunning and more crafty. And so when we pray this prayer, we are asking God to help us to address those places of pain and isolation, to get to the heart of the temptation, to that sin that gives birth to death in our lives. Because we know it's true. It is only when we get to the heart of the matter that we're able to do all of these things that we have prayed about, to forgive ourselves for those sins, to forgive other people for their sins, to become aware of our triggers, to untangle ourselves from these lies that we have wrapped our lives around. See, Jesus offers us a way out, a life in the light. So we pray, God, forgive us and lead us and deliver us. 
As we turn to our scripture passage for today, we see uh, first that it begs us to be real about our love of wealth. Just above this story in the scriptures, Jesus is telling us that we cannot serve both God and money. Jesus knew that having wealthy or socioeconomic status tempts us to isolate and hoard our resources instead of living communally and living freely. But this story also begs us to examine our notions of hell. I was driving last week down Highway 100 and I looked to the right of me and saw that on this big white truck there was a bumper sticker that said, stop, drop, and roll will not work in hell. And hell was like in big emphasized letters. Um, if you're from Alabama or you've driven down 65 to get to the beach, you know that between Birmingham and Montgomery, there's this huge sign that says, go to, the ch go to church or the devil will get you. And there's a picture of the devil with his long pitchfork dressed in red. You know, these ideas about hell um, seem, I don't know, amplified in this bumper sticker and this sign, but we know that they're true. We know that these are things that we have believed. We know that for a long time, religion has scared people into submission with these pictures of hell. And it has worked, but not without much damage and the installation of fear into the hearts of good people who conceive of God and understand God in a way that is not God's character. It's peculiar to me that the full version of the Apostles' Creed says this, who was conceived of, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. We've often left that line of the Apostles' Creed out in our churches. It is only after we say that line that Jesus goes into heaven, sits at the hand of God, and from thence comes to judge the living and the dead. And so I'm just gonna wonder out loud today, what happened when Jesus descended into hell? Did he open the gates of hell? Did he make that grand, uh, grand canyon of a chasm that our story talks about open, able to be crossed over and passed? What was Jesus's purpose? As an old professor of mine used to say, uh, would someone who was tormented and tortured to death sentence someone else to internal, eternal torture and torment? I'm afraid today I have more questions than answers that perhaps maybe simply put, hell is the absence of God. We endure it when we isolate from self and God and others, when we violate and trespass in ways that we never seek to make amends for. We are tempted in the religious life to put people into categories, to judge the living, to separate them to our standards of good and evil. We are tempted to use this notion and fear of hell to give into that carrot dangling in front of us. But sorting and judging is not our task. And God's method of motivation is not fear. That clicked for me even more this week as I was visiting our dear Mary Sue. I had seen her on Sunday night 
I went down to a live hospice on Wednesday uh, to say goodbye. And I want to tell you that when I do that, I I feel like I bring you with me, that I am representing you. So uh, when I walked into the room, at first, honestly, I was startled by her breathing because it was not the way it looked on Sunday. But she was comfortable, and she was sleeping, and she was at peace. Her two daughters, uh, Betsy and Linda, and I decided to gather around her. And I told her, church, what I think you would want her to hear. We love you. You lived abundantly. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then I pulled out my Bible, as I often do in these moments, and I read her the 23rd Psalm before I prayed with her and anointed her with water and remembered her baptism. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And because I've been listening to this line and saying this line, those words just grip my heart right there in the middle of praying. It was like I had an out-of-body experience. Because our shepherd leads us to the still waters of peace and awareness. Our Lord leads us not into temptation, but he leads us onto paths of righteousness for his name's sake, for his kingdom come. And when it comes to our death, we are to fear no evil. And so I think that this story in our scripture actually shifts to what we should be focused on, the very earthly life that we have before us. Quite frankly, church, the hell that people live in on earth. How will we address that? This is what the scripture says. The rich man begs Abraham to let Lazarus return to his five brothers to warn them about this place. But Abraham replies, you have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not even be convinced on someone who raises from the dead and returns to them. And so one commentator said, and I agree, what's left is that we are the five brothers. That is us. We have the choice to follow in the footsteps of the prophet Jesus and deliver the world from evil. And so we end back here in this place of collective us that we have been talking about in this prayer. Here we may be tempted to give into the polarization of our world. We may be tempted to write people off even in our own pews who don't believe what we believe. We may be tempted to shut down and retreat when the vast need of the world just feels so daunting. We may be tempted to hand ourselves over to systemic desire that leads to sin and gives birth to evil and injustice and oppression. We may be tempted to be afraid of and swallowed up and consumed by death in all its forms. But God says today, fear no evil. And so let us live up to our capacity for good. Let us, as Paul says, not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let us follow Jesus. He was and is and will always be the one who forgives us, leads us, and delivers us. Thanks be to God. Amen.